Hey everyone, you're listening to the Startup Scaler Show. On today's episode, I'm interviewing Rohit Gupta, a great mentor of mine and somebody who's already in his career had the chance to work both on the startup side as well as in venture capital. He's experienced in product management, early stage VC, and growth stage VC. So I'm excited to dive deeper with him on some questions around what his career has been like so far, what he's learned from each of these roles, and Rohit shares a little bit about each of them and what you can expect if you're looking to go into any of these fields, as well as advice for those starting their careers or perhaps thinking about the venture capital or startup space. Enjoy. Thanks again, Rohit, for joining. Um, really excited to have you here. Thank you for having me, man. Uh, it's yeah. a pleasure and an honor to be on this. Yeah, I was I was excited because I feel like you have a really unique background in that, you know, with your work experience so far, um, you've already had the chance to see kind of multiple parts of, I guess, the startup value chain or the startup ecosystem from being in an early stage startup, then at an early stage VC, and finally at a later stage growth stage VC now at ForgePoint. So I think you know, within the time frame that you've been working, you've had a good view of a lot of the different aspects of the startup ecosystem. So excited to have you on here. Awesome. Awesome, man. Yeah. Where should we start? Well, I think maybe we could just kick it off with, uh, it would be great to just, I guess, get a little bit of background, um, kind of from the grassroots, I guess, of, of what got you interested maybe in, you know, startups and, and the VC too, but uh, maybe just the startup ecosystem overall, like what was kind of your experience like in college and, and what prepared you for your role after graduation? For sure. And that's a lot. So I'll, I'll do my best. Let me know if I'm veering off course. And to be honest, Maxim, I think like, you know, ironically, just like with startups, I think my own career path has not been linear. Um, you know, I really didn't know much about venture capital um, let alone even product management, which is what I did out of college. I honestly had no clue of what those things were. You know, my junior, senior year, I think luckily there are folks today who are maybe more informed than I am. But yeah, I think maybe my interest in tech and business kind of just started actually at home. I was lucky to have a father who is an entrepreneur actually in the cybersecurity world. And so I remember him talking about his startup Obviously, you know, I didn't really see him a whole lot for those few years. Um, but, you know, I think that was my first exposure to the world of venture startups and tech. Um, but to be honest, I think like most people, I, I didn't really want to follow in my dad's footsteps. I mean, I, I thought that business and tech was really interesting, but I thought, hey, I'm going to get a, as far away from security, from like engineering as I can. And it's funny how the world works sometimes because now I'm at a, a security VC. Uh, but I think in college, man, yeah, I, I just did a lot of sampling. Uh, to be very candid, like there wasn't much rhyme or rhythm. It was just exploring what I found interesting, trying to figure out like what do I want to do for, you know, you know, arguably the rest of my life. And so I tried working at a startup my first summer, more of a strategy consulting role. Really enjoyed that environment. I loved the autonomy that I had the ability to make a lot of impact. Um, the mission kind of of the startup was great. All of that was awesome, but the environment was really unstructured. And at times I wasn't really sure, you know, just how much I was learning. Um, and so I decided to go to consulting. You know, I tried an internship at Deloitte for the summer. That was really fun. They flew me down to San Diego every week. 
to work at this, uh, you know, healthcare genomic startup, which was interesting. Um, I really liked math, so I thought I'd try investment banking. I was also in a kind of fraternity in college that had a lot of folks doing, let's say, that kind of path. So I tried that. It was really interesting, learning more about finance. But ultimately, I came back to the startup because that was the best environment for me personally. And I chose product management because I thought it'd be a great way to shore up um, my kind of business skills with a little more technical knowledge and try to experience something different. But um, yeah, I just kind of found my way to the world of venture, had a lot of mentors and friends that helped me along the way, giving me advice and help. Um, and that's pretty much my story in a nutshell. Got it. Yeah. I think, you know, you were pretty much exposed then to the world of startups, um, you know, from a young age with your dad doing a cybersecurity startup. Then in college, uh, UC Berkeley, of course, is, um, you know, among, I would say, the hubs of entrepreneurship, just being within the Bay Area. Um, so I think you got a lot of exposure there. But I think it's great that you did so much sampling in college to really find out sort of maybe what you liked, what you didn't like. I think that's a good way to um, kick it off. But then, you know, let's see a little bit more about how you ended up getting into sort of that first product management role, um, which was your first job after college when you were at ShieldX Networks. It'd be great if you could maybe share a little bit about what it was like to start your career there. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I think just getting there, to be honest, it was hard. I think, you know, just in general with product management, I think there's a small number of roles that are more apt for business focused people. You know, we've talked about this as well. There's a lot of more technical PM roles. So, you know, to be honest, I got lucky just through networking um, to get my foot in the door and then took classes on the side to learn how to do things like wireframing, um, you know, write uh, requirements in the form of stories. And so that was just a mix of, you know, me taking initiative and networking. And then I think, you know, once I was there, it, it was a really interesting experience. Like I, I wish I knew more about product early in my career. I might have been motivated to get a computer science degree, but it's a really cool kind of position where you're basically acting like the CEO of your kind of product, working with engineering, sales, finance, marketing, all the different kind of functions to make sure that this product and the overall company kind of is successful. And it's a weird kind of position where, you know, none of those folks report to you, but you know, what they do really impacts the end outcome of kind of a product, a launch, you know, et cetera. So it's a really interesting position where you have to use your influence. You have to use data, you have to build relationships to, you know, really influence folks in these other kind of functions to you know align to the same product vision that you have even though none of them report to you you have no real power other than talking to customers getting data you know telling a vision etc so i thought that was a really interesting um, role and a great way i think to start my career right i think one of the misnomers about product management is that people think you're kind of managing everybody that builds the product but really you're just managing sort of the roadmap of actually building that feature and that product. And uh, you have to work with other people who are not directly under you. So I think it's a kind of a, similar to VC in the respect that relationships are going to be really important. You have to talk to a lot of people speaking to customers and things like that. Um, but it would be good to know a little bit more about 
what was your actual influence on the product at ShieldX? Was there like a specific feature or part of the product that you were working on? Yeah. And so to be honest, at the time I was there, we only had one product. So, you know, I was working on pretty much the entire thing. Um, a lot of different features, things that are more simple, like role-based access control, you know, an audit log, backup and restore, some pretty basic, you know, features for any kind of enterprise class solution, all the way to a little more advanced things. Like we implemented a machine learning model that was able to um, identifying group workloads or virtual machines into clusters of groups that were very similar. So let's say the web tier of all the different applications within a company, let's put them in a group and then assign a security policy um, dynamically based on the kind of requirements that we're seeing. And that was pretty game changing. You know, if I have to say like the way that it's done in the industry is really manual it's very difficult to actually implement any kind of security policy um, in a dynamic way. And so that was really interesting. Um, and then pretty much everything in between as well. Mm -hmm. And what were maybe some of the challenges within either your specific role or being at an early stage startup uh, that you noticed during your time there for a couple of years? Honestly, that, that itself could be a whole another podcast topic <laughs> and like show. So I'll, I'll try to keep it short. I think from my experience, you know, something interesting, especially being in product was being in a startup where the engineering organization had a lot more influence and say over just general decisions, partly because, you know, obviously we had a CTO who was very technical, but our CEO was actually an engineer by trade. And so he would, you know, side with our CTO over my director of product management when the two of them inevitably butt heads about features or requirements, et cetera. And that was a challenge. You know, what that translated to was we would build really complex, interesting, you know, features that no one cared for, that the market, that our customers that we were talking to were just, you know, it didn't really do much for them. It didn't solve their pain points. It was mostly what engineers thought was really sexy and like interesting problems to solve. And so that was an interesting, I think, takeaway and learning in addition to, yeah, I think just the importance of, you know, go to market and channel strategies early on. You know, I, I used to think before that experience, you know, it's the companies that have the best product, the best, you know, experience, you know, those are the companies that are most successful. Ironically, being a product manager taught me how important some of these other functions are, especially go to market. You know, you can have the best working product in the world. But if you're not reaching the right people and you're not selling effectively, it doesn't really matter. Um, and so, yeah, there a lot of interesting learnings in addition to, yeah, just the politics of an early stage startup, which can be interesting and frustrating at times. Um, yeah, just like a lot of learnings. Uh, uh, totally. Right. Yeah, there's probably too much to, to unpack in a short time, but um, definitely want to touch on, you know, at some point as well, kind of the thoughts on scaling and go to market strategy. But uh, one thing I also noticed about what you said was that there could be sort of disagreements between the director of product and uh, maybe the executives on what features to build. And that tied into something I learned about product management where you'll have, for example, like B2C versus B2B product management where a B2C, a company like Twitter, you know, they might have millions of potential customers, 
versus B2B like ShieldX's cybersecurity solution, you'll have, you know, maybe hundreds of, of businesses that might be using the product. And in that case, do you typically work with your customers more to figure out which features that you want to build in the product, doing customer interviews and things like that? Or do you kind of work with the executives and their vision and bring that about and then go to the customers? Like, what was the process like for that? Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. I think it, it's a lot more of the former in terms of exactly to your point, because the universe of customers is a lot smaller with an enterprise kind of sale, it matters a lot more what their needs are, what their experience using the product is, and making sure that you architect the product to enable those key workflows that matter the most to them within you know, whatever job that they're in. I don't really think you have that same kind of decision calculus when it comes to B2C, just because, yeah, as you said, there's like thousands of millions of customers. It just doesn't make sense to be doing, you know, such targeted, let's say, interviews and kind of requirements gathering. Um, my understanding is that with B2C PMs and products, it, it's probably more around, you know, using data. I mean, I think data matters, whatever role you're in. But in B2C, you know, you can very easily identify the impact of a decision by looking at the impact on monthly active users, daily active users, the amount of money that you're making or transacting. I think that the data in response to your changes ends up being a much bigger factor than in enterprise B2B product um, you know, discovery, where it's much more driven by customer requirements, what their needs are. Um, which you have to go and surface and identify is at least my understanding. But I think there's definitely a big difference there mm -hmm. to your point. Uh, did you have any interesting experiences when it came to like talking to your own customers at ShieldX or collecting user feedback? Oh, there's a bunch. I mean, some of those went really well. You know, sometimes we were speaking the same language, you know, really keyed in on their kind of issues. And it seems like the platform was, you know, architected well for that. In other cases, we'd meet folks who, you know, their issues were nothing that we could solve or, you know, there was a clear mismatch. And I think those were really interesting cases that I wish we had discussed more as a team and, you know, use those learnings to really shift and shape our product roadmap. Unfortunately, it's something that I don't think really happened, partly because I think the team had a good sense of what the problem was and they felt that they maybe knew better than some of the customers. Um, and in general, yeah, I just think that overarching like engineering mindset made it difficult to even listen to the signals and the data that we did uncover in some of those interviews. Got it. Yeah. I think that ties in a lot to some of the things we look at in VC, like, especially at the early stage. I mean, when they're trying to find product market fit, figure out if there's, if they're solving the right problem, essentially, I feel like, PM kind of gives you that insight into really seeing what the different problems of the customers are and how you can sort of go about building the best solutions or features for them. So mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's pretty interesting how there's a few um, kind of learnings that maybe translate from PM to VC. Um, in your experience, was there anything that you felt like through your PM and, and startup experience helped you later on when you were a venture capitalist? 
Yeah, man, I think you, you hit on probably the biggest one, which was a deep appreciation and understanding of product market fit from the lens of customers and really listening to customer feedback, um, you know, trying to parse out what they need versus maybe what they want. I think that's served me pretty well in my venture career so far in terms of trying to figure out, you know, is there real product market fit for, you know, an early stage company or is this more of the kind of vision that they have that, you know, the executives are projecting onto their customer base. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, that turns out to be the case in like a lot of instances where maybe executive like startup founders have an initial idea, but they didn't really iterate or, you know, get feedback to maybe pivot. Um, and, you know, that kind of happens, I think, weirdly pretty often. And I think just in general, like working at a startup has given me a lot more empathy and probably more credibility whenever I speak with um, startup founders, you know, versus maybe going a more traditional path of just consulting or investment banking. Um, I think you, you really can't empathize with those struggles as deeply um, and have a, a good understanding of the politics, the you know, chaos and challenges of working in that environment. I think getting that operational experience was super helpful. Um, and then last but not least, I think, yeah, it really helped in terms of the network. Um, you know, some of those folks, my old coworkers went on to start different companies. Um, others, you know, stayed in the space, but are great experts. So, you know, that was also helpful from that perspective as well. Got it. So you have a big network that you can turn to in terms of expertise when you're looking into a company, perhaps. And then uh, also just to hear about new companies in the space. No, I think I think you're right. I think that's something that I've heard from, you know, many different VCs that experience on the operating side really allows you to empathize with the founders and sort of understand their unique situations better, um, offer potentially better portfolio support, uh, and just kind of let them know that you have their back instead of, you know, maybe just like building a financial model around their company essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, kind of to, to keep going with that topic. So your next step after ShieldX Networks was going into VC. Uh, I'm curious, maybe could you share a little bit more about what sort of sparked your interest in venture capital and how you started to explore the space? Yeah, definitely. I think, to be honest, that was pretty organic. It was a function of speaking with some folks who were in the fraternity I was in in college, who were a few years older, who were actually in venture, and just learning about, you know, what is your job like? What do you enjoy about it? What do you not like about it? And I kind of did that sampling for a few different roles um, in areas, whether it was private equity, you know, VC, you know, et cetera. I think what fascinated me from learning more about venture was the fact that you know a big part of your role is outwardly facing in the sense that you're pretty actively like meeting people even if you're a later stage firm you know you're pretty active in terms of meeting entrepreneurs other vcs other people in the ecosystem and that really caught my eye because you know i just love meeting people and learning from smart interesting folks and then I think the second aspect was the fact that it's a good blend of a lot of the different experiences that I had up to that point. You know, I think for sure, like venture at the end of the day is a finance job, but it really pulls together a lot of skills from a lot of different areas, 
arguably maybe more so than something like private equity, which I'd say, I'd say is very much finance focused. I think in venture, having some of those consulting and strategy skills, the finance, investment banking, you know, product and understanding of customers, like all of those different skills and ways of thinking are valuable and um, valued in venture. And I really like that too. So I think it was the combination of, you know, being able to meet a lot of interesting and, you know, really smart people and then tying together all the different things that I learned and, you know, switch between different contexts made the VC role seem pretty interesting to me. Yeah. I miss all the networking events, man. Before COVID, there was so much <laughs> meeting of other people in VC, different startups actually face to face, but I guess for now we'll have to do with zoom meetings. We'll do what we can, man. It's all good. Yeah. But no, I agree. I think there's a, a good blend of a few different skills because when you're assessing company, it's not just about the financial metrics, but for example, understanding the technology or the space that they're working in. So there's a, I would say a good, good mix there. Um, but then, so you started speaking with a lot of different people, um, folks from your old fraternity too, who were in VC. And then when you kind of made the decision that you wanted to get into VC, how was it sort of, what was your process there? And, and the reason I ask is because of course, VC is a space where, you know, there's a lot of folks trying to kind of get into the space, but it's, um, naturally not a huge market. So Right. It can be quite competitive to get in, as I'm sure you've experienced. So would be getting mm -hmm. good to just get your um, thoughts on that. Yeah, man, for sure. And so to be very candid, it took me six months um, from the time that I left my job at ShieldX to um, getting the offer at Plug and Play. Yeah, it was a six month time period. And, you know, I think that's something that folks should keep in mind, even for individuals who, you know, are competitive or think they're competitive for whatever reason, it can take a few months. You know, there's definitely one-off cases of like, yeah, if someone got a job in a week or two, but I think realistically um, you should expect to spend anywhere from like three to nine months of doing venture recruiting. And um, yeah, I, I just think on, on that piece itself, it's tough. Um, in terms of maybe how I approached it, I wanted to focus on firms and funds that, had a thesis or portfolio companies that I thought were interesting, whether it was, you know, software impact, you know, cyber, whatever I found interesting, I kind of focused based on yeah, thesis and sector and then on uh, VC stage. I thought at that time that early stage was most interesting to me because I worked at an early stage company. Um, you know, I had finance experience, but that wasn't what I was most passionate about. And so that's kind of how I organized my search. And then to get the interviews was a mix of just applying directly, trying to do some networking beforehand to get referrals um, and all the other good stuff that I'm sure folks are, are doing currently. But yeah, after about three months, I decided to do a, a kind of apprenticeship program for BC called Venture University in SF. Was not cheap by any means, um, but gave me some good experience, and I think it, it really helped me in my interviews. Ultimately, helping me to land that offer at, at Plug and Play, uh, where I ultimately joined. Yeah, makes sense. And you know, I sort of had a similar experience. It definitely took a while to kind of get my foot in the door in VC. Um, I had sort of a couple of internships, and then um, luckily through kind of 
meeting Malad and getting to know you at Plug and Play too. That's how I got the internship at Plug and Play, which uh, eventually, you know, turned into the the analyst position that I'm at now. But uh, I agree, it's 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 pretty tough. Oftentimes, there's not even applications open for VCs, um, mm-hmm. so you really have to kind of network and and find the right people to connect with, uh, to to even find out about those opportunities. Um, and then, you know, what was your experience like from your perspective in early stage VC? Was it sort of what you had expected or was there different learnings um, when you were at Plug and Play? Yeah, to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure I really had many expectations going into it um, beyond what I think pretty much everyone else, you know, has from seeing like Silicon Valley from, you know, whatever, you know, general perceptions you have of venture. I, that's pretty much kind of what I was walking into. I had a sense of, you know, the day-to-day of like sourcing, you know, diligence, but in terms of the environment and the dynamics, I think that was all really unique. I don't know how much of that is, I'm sure a lot of it unique to plug and play in terms of the culture and the way that they invest. But I think in general, the environment was, was pretty unique for me. Um, yeah, I, curious kind of, you know, where you, you want to kind of take this. But yeah, I mean, I think early stage venture, the things that I they confirmed I liked about it were that you were meeting with folks who had really, they were just passionate about a vision for the future. And it was so early that it's not clear who would be very successful. I found that very exciting in the sense that, you know, there is no right answer and there's no data that could give you a right answer. And the beauty lies in being able to, you know, almost play the future forward to figure out, you know, is this market going to be real in a few years? Does this team have a take, you know, whatever it takes to execute? And do they have the right thinking of their go to market? Is the product architected well, et cetera? Like, I like the fact that there was so much uncertainty at the early stage. It made it interesting to research and try and do diligence on some of these areas that were a little more fuzzy. Um, I love the aspect of just learning a lot, meeting a lot of different companies. That might be a quirk of plug and play, though, which is a you know family office and they do a lot of investments. So, I really like that though, in terms of learning a lot about different spaces. Um, I, I think though the one or not challenge, but something that I, I wanted a little more of was to, you know, take a you know, bigger, more impactful position in terms of portfolio support. I don't think that's really a, you know, something for early stage or later stage, but I just think that's really important and very valuable in terms of, really feeling the tangible impact of what you're doing and being able to create alongside your portfolio companies, in addition to the, all, all the analysis that you need to do. You know, I really like that aspect of trying to create with them. And maybe that's easier at the earlier stage where companies just don't have a lot of things figured out, whether it's a business model or that go to market strategy. And I think it's interesting that you can be very instrumental in creating those processes, those strategies, as an early stage investor, um, which may be interesting. Right. I think, you know, there's definitely a unique perspective, I would say, at plug and play in terms of sort of given that plug and play invests in maybe two to 300 companies a year, it's obviously a bit more aggressive, perhaps in terms of um, sourcing, doing investments. But uh, overall, I think a lot of that is, you know, has similar threads to what you see in most early stage VCs. 
but I think you touched on an interesting point with your impact. I feel like um, just knowing you and sort of how you, for example, helped a lot of different interns uh, get, you know, in place at plug and play and, and sort of mentored them walking through um, their experiences, also portfolio support uh, for your portfolio startups. I think impact has always been a pretty big sort of area for you. Um, and, you know, I'm curious, where do you think maybe the impact of, of venture lies in terms of ways that, you know, perhaps we can impact founders or, um, or even beyond that? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. And yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts. I'll try to be, I don't know how to put this. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. Some are positive, some are negative around venture. So we can take this however you want. Maybe just the positive side first. I think that like fundamentally, people in venture are gatekeepers who shape and influence access and access to capital pretty is you know fundamentally if you really abstract out some of the bullshit like that's what vcs are there are middlemen between you know entities and folks that have a lot of capital they're looking for returns and these startups and founders that are looking to make a difference in the world and i think that's where a lot of the impact comes from you know just structurally in terms of trying to provide capital to underrepresented um for instance individuals who historically have been denied access to capital uh, through existing financial you know, systems, but venture and startups are a great way, which hopefully has a more equitable playing field, although the data doesn't really bear that out. But I think in theory, venture capital can be a great way to provide capital to underrepresented individuals who are looking to make a difference sometimes or oftentimes within their own communities. And I think, you know, that's really exciting. Um, and then I think in general, like, you know, something that I started to realize and hopefully the industry does as well is that, you know, you can merge your capitalistic desires with a desire to do better in the world and investing in startups that are quote unquote impact doesn't necessitate concessionary returns. In fact, a lot of recent successes from Tesla to Beyond Meat to many others demonstrate that, you know, businesses that care about making a positive societal contribution can actually be great financially lucrative investments as well. And so I think that's a really exciting avenue for venture in terms of, you know, conscious capitalism, really directing capital towards some of the world's largest problems in an effort to address them at scale, which is what technology is really good at. So, you know, from a, I wouldn't say naive, but from a hopeful perspective, I think venture can provide access to capital to those who historically have been denied it. You know, ideally using that capital to make a difference in their own communities or the world at large. And then secondly, you know, combining capitalism with an intent to do impact and venture can be the mechanism to facilitate these impactful companies and startups to change the world is what right. I hope can happen. Whether that you know, really happens in reality, I think it's a whole nother conversation. And um, there are some mm -hmm. aspects of venture that you know, I maybe don't necessarily agree with or love, but overall, I think it can be a force for good um, if used properly. Mm -hmm. Right, and I'm curious you know, from your experience, maybe investing in some of the companies that you invested in, um, 
or some of the founders that you've worked with, uh, did you feel like there was areas where maybe your values align in terms of um, producing that impact and sort of times where you kind of felt that there was a good impact there? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I'm trying to think, um, you know, back at plug and play, you know, we looked at a variety of really cool startups. We made an investment in one called journey foods, which was a basically a use of AI to enable these um, ingredient, you know, manufacturers and food producers to make their products more sustainable um, without increasing the cost and to help them to target, you know, different segments of, you know, populations in a more effective way. But with that kind of sustainability piece in mind, you know, I just thought it was really fascinating, really interesting in that, yep, you can help increase, you know, bottom lines for these food companies, but you can also help make products and packaging more sustainable, which I thought was great. In the cybersecurity world, I think there's a lot of impact that can be made, whether it's in terms of protecting consumer privacy, which is obviously a huge topic nowadays with GDPR, CCPA, you know, et cetera, um, in terms of you know, providing explainability for AI systems to address algorithmic bias, which is really rampant and pretty upsetting. And then finally, you know, in terms of protecting national security, protecting our federal agencies and government entities who are constantly under attack as the recent solar winds, you know, breach shows. Um, you know, I think that battle's never ending. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I honestly think there's an impact in pretty much every area of venture um, as well. Yeah, I think for sure. I mean, one of the things that stuck out to me in terms of, uh, you know, venture capital in general, when I was interested in the space and first joining is that you work with a variety of different entrepreneurs who are really setting out embarking on a mission to change the world somehow. Um, ideally, you know, something that's going to give people, um, more access for for example, or, um, provide a service that's going to improve people's lives. So I think there's ideally like an impact for the better. Um, I think, you know, there is a challenge though. I remember I was speaking once to, um, a partner essentially of a VC sort of, and just a networking event capacity, and we're discussing sort of getting into the space. Um, I had mentioned, you know, what I liked most about venture was perhaps this impact area. And he was saying, you know, that's great, but that's not necessarily what like venture capitalists want to hear because at the end of the day, they're looking to maximize their sort of profits. So I think mm-hmm. there is definitely a sort of a fine line where you kind of, it's, it's, I guess, hard to say sometimes if, you know, it can be as impactful as, as one would hope, I guess. Um, but maybe that feeds a little bit into um, what you were talking about. There's positives and negatives. 100%. And luckily, I think the mindset is shifting, starting all the way from the top with uh, you know, entities and individuals who are LPs. Now, we're even seeing this at ForgePoint, where they're increasingly you know, asking us about the impact that our companies are having asking more in the realm of ESG, I think as LP mindsets start to shift, that will eventually trickle down to their GPs, to the funds, and then you know, to portfolio companies and startups as well. So I'm optimistic, cautiously, that you know, there is a shift happening in you know, really caring about and talking about impact 
in addition to the financial profile and return that these companies are obviously having. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's, it's going to be, I'd say a slow change, but I think over time, you know, as at least more data is being collected and impacts are being quantified and there's even startups that are helping with that, then we can um, essentially start to collect more data about the actual impact of, you know, the venture capital dollars. But, uh, you know, one thing I, I did want to touch on as well, and um, I guess any other thoughts on the impact space before sort of moving on? No, no. I mean, I think that's pretty much it, man. I think you're, you're seeing more and more funds pop up every day, more and more startups in many different fields. So I think for folks listening who are thinking about impact and wondering if venture, you know, aligns with that, I think absolutely. And the time is now um, to be entering this industry and to change the, the direction and dynamics of it from within. Yeah, that's great to hear. I think, you know, passionate people looking to make an impact. Um, venture capital is a good way to go as well. But uh, one thing I, I wanted to touch on next, you know, this is the Startup Scaler show, and we like to talk about startups and how they're kind of going to market, what's enabling them to be successful, and things like that. And you touched on an interesting point um, in your previous operating experience. You had mentioned that you learned the importance of go-to-market strategy and how that sort of Silicon Valley belief that a great product will sell itself is not necessarily true. And so you need to build out a strong go to market and uh, um, kind of sales function and things like that to really scale a company. So from what you've seen, what do you think are some of the most important things to consider um, for early stage startups when they're starting to scale? Got it. Yeah. I think to be honest, there's, there's probably no one most important thing. I think in general would be a mindset of just testing testing what channels make sense rather than, you know, putting your eggs in one basket based on some assumptions or preconceptions that may or may not be true. So for instance, what I mean by that is thinking that, you know, a, for instance, in the example of ShieldX that, you know, managed service security providers or MSSPs, which as the name implies, you know, they manage security products for a lot of different companies and enterprises. You, know, you would think that would be a really good channel for something like ShieldX, a cloud security kind of solution. Um, turns out it, it wasn't, you know, for a variety of reasons. But I think it's important at the early stage to do that kind of A-B testing of your different channels. You know, turn, you know, maybe end of the day, a direct sales um, motion was the right way to go versus trying to build a channel strategy that never really came to fruition. So I think testing out and getting data from the different channel opportunities you have is really important um, before you really kind of double down and set a vision. I think it's important to know what channels are effective, what is not effective, what assumptions did you have that you've now tested and ooh, you know, they might be off. off. I, I just think that mindset is the most important rather than, you know, any one particular point or tip if that makes sense got it yeah i think that makes a lot of sense because oftentimes for example in in vc you know when we're listening to a startup discuss their go-to-market strategy it's uh, always seems great to hear things like channel partnerships um over just for example direct sales because it seems like 
anybody could sort of do direct sales. But as you mentioned, um, there's, you know, a need to sort of make sure that the strategy that you're using is working best. So um, maybe starting with the small scale, like partnerships, seeing if those help um, and seeing if, you know, the data you're collecting is positive versus trying a little bit of direct sales, seeing how that works, um, digital marketing and, and things like that. And just sounds like what you're saying is sort of a lean start approach of trying each strategy a little bit and testing to see what works best. And then um, going forward off of that. Exactly. Yep. Got it. Um, has there been any, you know, creative strategies of uh, go to market that maybe have stuck out to you either from uh your experience at Shieldex or from startups that you've seen as a VC? Hmm. Yeah, to be honest, I, I don't know if there's been anything that is really, you know, revolutionary kind of as an approach. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think, you know, you got to a little bit just start off with, kind of the lean approach, as you had mentioned, I think one thing that I learned recently was um, there was that shoe startup uh, Zappos, which essentially, you know, they're a big company now, but what they would do is sell uh, shoes over e-commerce. Um, what they did essentially was they just put up a website to see if they could get some traction on getting people to order shoes. And uh, they didn't actually have any inventory they would go across the street, take pictures of the shoes that were there and post them on the website. And if people ordered it, um, they would then go to the store, pick up the shoes and mail it to those people. So I think that wasn't necessarily like a go to market strategy, but just an interesting strategy for them to do kind of a test to see if their strategy would work as a business and then sort of scale from there. Got it. Got it. Yeah. No, I actually seen that a few times. I think MeUndies, that popular women and menswear brand, similar story of, I think the founders had a blog with a few thousand people that they, you know, quickly converted into their initial customers to, you know, really get their motion kind of going. I think on the enterprise side, the only equivalent I've seen to something like that would just be, for instance, in the security world, you know, I, you know, speaking with 50 you know, chief information security officers or CISOs, um, you know, to get a sense of, you know, what you need to be building, how you should be approaching things, you know, even before you build something, I think is a great, let's say like product um, development approach. I think in terms of go to market, maybe something that was interesting is, you know, we recently saw a company that, you know, is starting to do joint partnerships with other startups and they're selling a combined solution that is very valuable to their end customers that neither one of the individual startups alone could have delivered. They're just not architected to do what the other company is doing, but together their combined solution is really, you know, exciting for a lot of large enterprises. So that was pretty interesting to see. You know, you see the like system integrator, you know, large you know, company try to sell product that, that happens a lot, but it was pretty rare to see two, you know, similarly staged startups decide that, Hey, you know, our combined solution is really, you know, appealing to one of the startups customer bases. Let's uh, work together and try to sell more. I thought that was pretty interesting. 
don't really see that too often. Got it. Yeah. A joint venture between other startups, essentially that they could then create a product that they wouldn't be able to do on their own. Yeah. I think that's definitely pretty unique. There's gotta be some risks involved there where they took some assumptions. Um, but I'm sure they tested it out and sounds like it's working for them. So yeah, it's good to good to hear just trying out unique strategies. Um, well, you know, one thing, you know, I wanted to touch on as well was sort of the next step within your career where you went from early stage to later stage venture capital. Um, so after getting into VC, you know, you understand that there's sort of different types of venture capital with early stage investing, usually at the seed stage, maybe series A, and then growth stage VCs writing bigger checks in later rounds. What differences have you seen from early stage VC to your experience in later stage VC? Right. And maybe I'll preface this by saying, you know, I can't really speak generally because I've only had experience at like a few firms. And so, you know, I hope what I'm about to say isn't construed as like a blanket statement, but instead is just things that I notice as differences from my own experiences. Just wanted to put that caveat there. I think what, what's been interesting for me is that once again, in my experience, it seems like the later stage venture firms just have a really, you know, thorough and disciplined investment process. Once again, I'm sure there are early stage firms that similarly are very disciplined, very thorough. Um, but that was really interesting to see in terms of, you know, everything from doing quarterly updates to making sure we have all the right financial information on our companies, the process of reporting to your LPs, um, you know, making and pretty much everything in between. There's just a lot of that process that I personally didn't really see in the early stage side. I'm not sure if that's because of, you know, the company I was at or just in general, but the discipline with which you invest um, seems to be a little more, um, you know, like stronger at the later mm -hmm. stage. I also think because you have more data, um, some of the conversations tend to be a little more focused because, you know, it, it's less arguing about some hypothetical future based on conversations and, and, you know, research. It's more here is their LTV to CAC ratio. Um, you know, this other, you know, metric, oh, you know, it's not really that great. Let's pass. So I think it's easier to make decisions in a way at the later stage as well, just because you have more of this data and you have better pattern recognition of what metrics and information matter. So it becomes a little easier, I think, to make decisions um, at the later stage. The early stage, you have just so much less data. It's a lot more research that has to go into the market. Um, there's a lot more risk in the team at the early stage versus the late stage, because hopefully at that point, you know, they've shown that they can execute. Um, and the questions are more about, you know, where's the market heading? Are you architected? Is your you know, competitive position strong enough to get to whatever outcome that they're looking for? Um, let's see what else. Um, yeah, I mean, I think those are just some casual, like firsthand observations. Yeah, no, so. that's really interesting, especially your point about being more disciplined, essentially in your investments. I never really thought of it that way to, to be frank, but I'm interested to know sort of what are maybe 
uh, is it with regards to like metrics that you're seeing? You're like, if it's not at this level, then we're for sure not going to invest. Or is it just that you do a lot more modeling and things like that each time you actually consider an investment? I think it's a lot more the latter than the former in terms of, you know, maybe it's because we're putting in a lot of money, like tens of millions of dollars in every deal. You better be damn sure that, you know, you've done your homework right and that the market checks out, the team checks out, the competition makes sense. You're not, you're funding the best company in the space um, that, you know, the terms matter, the valuation makes sense that you can come to, like, there's so many facets, I think. And the later stage investors have to go very deep into every single one of them. And maybe they can, they're allowed to do so because there is more information available at that stage. But it's just a very different process, I think, from the early stage investors who, once again, you know, you can be very disciplined and detailed, but I think the lack of information makes it just less so. Um, and maybe the frequency of investing plays a part in that as well. If you're only doing a few deals a year, your diligence could be a few months. You know, like, uh, which is pretty, pretty different than some. Yeah. And it probably feels pretty good when you finally get that $15 million check signed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Totally. hundred um, percent. No, no, that's great though. I think it's, it's definitely a different approach at the early stage. Uh, you have, as you mentioned, so little data to go off of, you really have to make bets on the team in the space versus when, um, you're at a later stage, you have a lot more. Uh, revenue information, a lot more of sort of business and uh, metrics to essentially analyze the company off of. Um, the second part of it, though, is how is your own sort of like day to day changed in a growth stage VC versus an early stage? Yeah, and I think that's another one where once again, my experience may not be representative of the overall dynamics, but at least in my experience, what was interesting is that the early stage firm a lot of a lot more time, significantly more time was spent on sourcing, and that was an expectation at the junior level. Um, I understand that there are some firms that are not like that, even at the early stage, but I would think that is more common just because you know it's you're it's really hard to find good investments at the early stage because there's so many companies you need more people, more networks at play to find good companies, whereas in later stage. Once again, because there's so much data, the universe of companies that are at a series B or a series C is really small. Oftentimes, like it's well known which companies are hot and exciting. The hard part is getting into the deal rather than finding the deal. So I think because of that dynamic, you know, early stage firms tend to prioritize sourcing more so at the junior level. I think at later stage firms, it tends to be a lot more, you know, it depends. I've seen, I've, I have friends who are, you know, also just sourcing mostly. And then others, like in my role, which are a little more execution and diligence focused, um, maybe that's because, you know, at ForgePoint, we're focused on cybersecurity and our team has amazing experience and network and background in that area. So, you know, it's really hard to source better than, you know, folks who've been in this industry for like 20 years and have the best relationships. Um, and frankly, I think like what the firm needs is more support on executing deals, doing portfolio support. Um, so my role tends to be a little more diligence and execution portfolio support focused than really, you know, sourcing, which was more of my role at the early stage fund. But once again, 
you know, there's exceptions to every rule. I have friends at later stage funds that are mostly sourcing. Um, but at least in my experience, that's been a bit different. Got it. And you touched on an interesting area, that fact that, you know, there's a set universe of pretty interesting companies, obviously the ones that have gotten their seed stage financing, maybe a series A round and at the series B level, you're trying to invest, but it can be hard to get into those deals. So I, I was curious, you know, from your perspective, what sort of maybe portfolio support um, or what kind of things can you offer to try to be more competitive within those deals and maybe also sharing a little bit more about your own experience with portfolio support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, you know, more broadly, I think what helps is if you have done the work before meeting the company to create a thesis and have a hypothesis that aligns with the way that this uh, company and team sees the world and the change that they want to make. Just first off, I think that always helps you um, because you have a similar kind of mental model and, you know, the vision kind of resonates more deeply than, you know, someone who just opportunistically, you know, came upon, an, you know, a deal or a market, but they then, then have to do homework on and research versus having some deeper level insights already at the starting point. And then I think, yeah, in terms of, you know, once you are invested, I think it really just comes down to your network. That's such a big part of this. And I know it's cliche, but the network will help you to find the best talent for that company to introduce them to prospective customers and partners um, to help them with their product or technical related things. Um, you know, there's a bunch of different technology and services that you can provide, which is something that we're thinking about. So for instance, like, how do you track folks from companies that have recently exited who in maybe 12 to 18 months, they might be a good fit for your portfolio company. It'd be really interesting to have a software tool that can automate that. I know there are firms that kind of do that as well, but I think, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can be helpful in portfolio support. And I think a big one is actually governance having, you know, people who have sat on boards before makes a huge difference in terms of, I think the governance aspect of a company um, and also if folks have prior entrepreneurial success and experiences, I think, you know, they can relate in an even deeper level than folks who just have general operating experience. Um, so hopefully that, that answered the question. And in terms of how I approach portfolio support is you know, pretty much the same way. Try to use my network as best as I can to be of you know, service to the portfolio companies. Um, you know, making introductions to customers and partners, depending on the area, if I'm knowledgeable enough, maybe even help out with the product roadmap or give kind of design UX reviews based on my background. And then doing some finance, FP&A kind of support is really big for companies, even at a later stage where they may only have one or two finance, you know, employees, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So um, lots, lots of areas to add value. <laughs> Got it. So yeah, you definitely add value in a lot of different areas there from, you have the finance side, the network and introductions. Um, you've also sat on boards yourself, either as an observer, at least. So, um, understanding the way that those dynamics work. No, that's, yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways to add value, but great to hear, you know, what your experience has been. And I think we're actually sort of coming up on the hour here, but, um, a couple of things that I wanted to talk about, I guess, in terms of, uh, you know, 
maybe your goals for, for this year, perhaps, um, what are you thinking, uh, 2021 is going to hold? I know 2020 was kind of a, uh, a pretty disruptive year in a lot of ways. We're all working from home. What are you expecting out of uh, this coming year? <laughs> yeah, no, I think uh, based on 2020, it's hard to really even want to forecast or like predict how this year will go. I think on the professional side, you know, I just want to be learning more, getting more experience, you know, developing the skills that I've been trained to learn and just getting further there. I don't think there's really any, you know, metric or something tangible I'm hitting towards. It's just learning and growing. Um, and then personally, you know, I think we mentioned this before, but, you know, I picked up the trumpet recently, really want to start learning more and playing more complex, um, you know, songs and chords. Um, I'm writing a book on the side and whatever little spare time I have. So I love to make more progress there. Um, and yeah, I, I think in general for me, I just want to create more this year. Um, I think that's a big part. But Got yeah. it. Now we could definitely do a whole nother podcast episode on the activities of Rohit Gupta in terms <laughs> of uh, everything you're doing professionally, the book you're writing, um, music. Yeah, I think that's great, man. I think, you know, this year is, it's going to be a little difficult to predict. I'm trying to keep coming back at it with these podcast episodes. Um, also continue learning more, continuing to work with startups um, and just, you know, good to hear your goals there as well. I think on the last question, I would, I would just like to ask, is there any sort of advice that you would want to give to uh, the people starting out? Like, what would you say to the kids? You know, the people who want to be either in startups or VC, I think there's a lot of people would look up to sort of where you're at right now. Oof. You've asked a lot of hard questions. This might be the toughest one for real. Um, yeah, oh, that's hard. To be honest, I, I just think my only perspective and feedback would be to really introspect and take that time to figure out what motivates you and what are you passionate about? I think, you know, the beauty of life is that that's an ever evolving journey and question, you know, the, there's probably no right answer, but I think having more conviction around what those might be for you and your life will help you in whatever field or path you decide to go on. So for me, it was figuring out that I care a lot about impact and learning. Those are two things that really have driven a lot of the decisions I've made in my life and influenced you know, the path I'm on today. And so I think knowing those things was really helpful in determining what path I want to go on, what I'm passionate about, what I'm excited about, and having those conversations with yourself continuously as things change and evolve, I think will just serve you very well. Um, in addition to, yeah, get some mentors, get some folks who know more than you do, who can share some tips, open up doors, um, you know, network and get referrals, I think strategically is like a, one of the best things to do in general, especially in these competitive fields, but hope that yeah. helps. Yeah. Networking is always helpful, but I really like that first part too, getting more introspective. I think that can be difficult in our society. It's very noisy. Um, there's constantly things you can distract yourself with, but yeah, I mean, that's great advice to anybody to just figure out what really motivates them kind of in quiet times. Um, think about 
what they really want on a deeper level and then go from there. And I think that could help them be successful in whatever they pursue. Um, that's great. I think, you know, that's a great point to leave it there for the listeners out there. So thanks again, Rohit, really good having you on the podcast. Um, great to have my own mentor here (laughs) and, uh, from the plug and play side. So always good to catch up with you. Thank you for having me, man. Um, you know, proud of everything that you've accomplished and continue to accomplish and excited for what the future holds for you and hope the people listening found this worthwhile. Thank you, man. I'm sure they will appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for listening. That was my chat with Rohit. We covered a lot of information from startups to VC to impact investing, but I hope you got a lot out of that as much as I did. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions and thanks for listening. Thank you.